here and it's good to be back. I, uh, I've been gone the last two weekends and that was not by plan. Um, and I've had a journey that maybe some of you have, have, have reflected a little bit. So two weeks ago, um, I was planning on being here for the weekend. We had Matthias scheduled to preach, but I was going to be here. And I started fighting a uh, kind of the crud that's going around uh, that week. And, but I, w- I, I had willed myself to be better by the weekend. And uh, that didn't work. Saturday morning, I came to work and studied for a while and went home, raised the red flag and went to bed. And I uh, got up, I think, sometime Monday. Um, and by the time I got up on Monday, I'd lost my voice. And uh, that was gone, which was kind of a problem because... That was Monday. On Wednesday, I, was, uh, I had plans to fly to Phoenix uh, to visit my daughter. <clears throat> Me not having a voice probably sounded perfect to her, but, uh, but I was going to go down there. Uh, we have a 19-year-old daughter who's going to Grand Canyon University. She's a senior there, and it was a big year for her. And so I had made the plan, um, boy, over a month ago to go down and visit her. Just I had an inkling. It might be cold here. It might be hot there. It sounded good. Uh, it was 100 there. It was actually really nice. People, everyone up here is like, oh, that must have been awful. No, it was really nice. But, uh, but I flew down. Uh, I was, my, my plan was to fly down on Wednesday, which all turned out to be very fortuitous because um, on Monday, uh, uh, my daughter uh, texted me and said that she was in the ER and um, she had been admitted there. And uh, she's had some... Um, health issues for about the last year and a half uh, that keep cropping up and it just causes a lot of pain for her. And so the doctor said, you know, you just need to have surgery and it'll all be fixed and it'll be good to go. Um, and she was home this summer, but it never cropped up and she, you know, go figure, she didn't want to deal with it if it didn't crop up. So sure enough, um, she had some issues. So she'd been in the ER several times in uh, the week before I went down there. So my plan was to fly down on Wednesday, uh, which I did, and I could be there. The doctors had said she's going to have to have surgery right away. It was going to be perfect. I was just going to be there Wednesday through Friday. I'd be able to be there, be her dad while she's having surgery, come home. It was all a little bit complicated because I lost my voice, and um, even though I willed myself to get my voice back, it did not come back by the time I flew down on Wednesday, which, by the way, is really fun. Traveling without a voice is really fun. Um, you know, trying to get through the airport is fun. Um, but actually, most of the problems I encountered were of my own making. Like, I got to Phoenix. I was going to meet my daughter at a medical appointment. But I had a few minutes. So I was driving down the road, and I thought, hey, I'll go through the drive through at Starbucks. Right? I have no voice. Like, it seems obvious. But I didn't think of it. I was going through the drive through All of a sudden, I realized, wait, how am I going to order? And just right when a car comes in back of me. So I, I, I go up, you know, they're saying, you know, welcome to Starbucks, you know, what's your order? And I'm trying to, so my voice was kind of at this place where um, I didn't really have much of a voice, but if I tr- yelled really loud, it would just barely come out and it would sound like a 13-year-old boy, you know, kind of thing, um, kind of cracking. And <clears throat> so anyways, and my usual drink is a venti, half-calf, hazelnut, mocha with almond milk and whip. Right, I know. And I got a mocha. Like, right, what do you want? I tried to tell her. She couldn't hear anything. What do you want? Mocha, right? What size do you want? Big is one syllable, so big. You know, that's all I ended up getting. Here's the thing. I did it once. I did it twice. I did it three times. Three times I kept going through the drive-thru, but eventually I figured it out. Don't go through the drive-thru. Went, met my daughter for her medical appointment. Um, They were like, yeah, we're going to get in for surgery right away. It'll be great. Solve all the problems. It sounds great. Uh, Thursday afternoon, they call and say, yeah, we got it scheduled. It's going to be next Monday. And I was leaving on Friday. 
So uh, anyways, uh, Friday morning, got up. Um, I confess, I went to Starbucks, sat outside. It was 75, drinking my coffee, <clears throat> enjoying my morning, but very conflicted. Uh, so here's my conflict, and maybe you can relate to this. So surgery's on Monday. Um, on the one hand, talking to my wife, at, at that point, it's so late in the game, it would just have cost a fortune for me to come home and my wife to fly down there. And so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should stay. I can stay. I can be with Abby. We absolutely wanted a, an adult with her uh, for the surgery. I mean, she's 19. She's like, Dad, I don't need anybody. But turns out she did. And uh, so I thought, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, well, I should, I should stay. And, I, you know, I need to change all the reservations, all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I needed to get back. Uh, when I traveled down there, I didn't take a work computer. I didn't take uh, any books or anything because I just thought I was going to be there for a couple of days. Abby and I were going to be hopping, doing stuff, and I'd be back. And then I'd be ready for this weekend because we were going to start a series in the book of James. And uh, so on the one hand, I'm like, I want to be with my daughter. On the other hand, I'm like, I got to get back. I got to get to work. We have a lot of stuff coming. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm th you may find this surprising if you know me, but, um, but I tend to make things I get involved with more complicated than not. So I got out a piece of paper and it's very, I'm so conflicted. I don't know, should I go? Should I stay? I don't know what to do. And uh, I'm studying the book of James, which said, you know, if you lack wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds like a good plan. So I prayed, I got them praying. Uh, my phone rings. Um, it's somebody from church here. It's, uh, it's uh, some of the senior leadership. And, uh, and he calls and he says, hey, you know, what's going on? What's happening? And so I just told him, you know, I got, got a situation with Abby. I feel like I need to be here, but I need to get home. I got you know, to get back for the church. Got a lot of responsibility to take this seriously. And uh, it's quiet for a minute. And he says, well, I don't know. It seems pretty obvious to me. You should just stay. And I said, I know, but I, got, I don't have any books. I don't have anything. He says, well, do you have a Bible? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I have a Bible. Do you have a pad of paper? You got a pen? Yeah, but I don't remember how to use them, right? You know, he's like, sounds like you have everything you need. Just stay there, be with your daughter. And then he finally said, you know, if you need permission, I'm just giving you permission. You stay, take care of your daughter, come home when you can. So uh, I, I, everything fell into place immediately. I was able to change my tickets for the flight. I was able to get a different car, all that stuff. Worked out great. Turned out to be very, very good planning. Um, that was Friday. Saturday, she ended up at the ER uh, for the entire day. We went in early in the morning. And by 3 in the afternoon, she was still in the ER. And there was a standoff, really. I don't know how else to explain it, between the emergency room physicians and her doctor. And uh, so I had to kind of jump in and get involved. It was really cool. I got to be like superhero dad. Got the problem solved. And uh, on Monday, she went and had surgery. Surgery went great. Um, by Wednesday, she was back in classes, back to work, doing well. Um, and she knows that many of you were praying for her. She texted me last night before church and said, please thank everyone who was praying for me. It made a big difference. She's got a big load. She's taken 20 hours at her senior year, so she couldn't afford to get behind. Texted me Saturday night, all caught up, got her classes caught up, got her papers done. So thank you guys for praying for her. I appreciate it. Um, for, for me, a couple things I wanted to mention. First of all, just... Uh, I want to thank you for being the kind of church where um, I can be the kind of dad I need to be when that happens. And it was really nice talking with, uh, 
with another leader from the church going, you know, if you need to stay and if it means next weekend's going to be kind of rough, um, this is the kind of church that understands that. We want you to be the dad you need to be. So first of all, I want to thank you for that. It was so meaningful for me to be able to be there and, and to be Abby's dad and to be what she needed. Um, secondly, I uh, just want to mention this weekend is going to be a little different. It's going to be a little rough than I planned because by the time I got back into town, just kind of getting everything ready took a while. But we are going to get into James today. And uh, the last thing I want to mention is that I, I got my voice back, but I'm still dealing with uh, a lot of stuff. So I'm, I'm doing this stuff, right? Anybody like Ricola? So if uh, I, I'm going to do this during the sermon, I apologize for that in, in advance. And if you need something, if you need a Ricola while we're going... In the sermon, I'm a pretty good shot, so I could probably get one to you. So we're going to be in the book of James. Um, if you're not familiar, James is in the New Testament. It's technically uh, what we call an epistle or a letter. Uh, it's the 20th of 27 books in the New Testament. And today, we're going to do one verse. We're just going to get started in the book of James, and it starts this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Let me pray for us and, uh, and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you for just for my life for the last few weeks and the way that uh, you continually answered prayer and, um, and led me and, and, and Abby and our family through our situation. And I know that uh, if there was time, probably everyone in this congregation could share stories about how uh, we have needed you in the last week and you have been there. How you have answered prayers, how you have given us your grace and mercy and your wisdom. And uh, that's, that's why we're here today, because you are our Savior, our God, because you lead us. I pray now that you would do for us what I cannot do. I pray that your spirit will open up our hearts and minds. I pray that you will bring the word alive to us. And uh, I pray that we will not just learn something today, but I pray that we will grow in our faith and that we will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So we're going to look at James today. James in the New Testament. And uh, first thing you need to know about James, and my switch here isn't working real well today. There we go. Is uh, we believe that the guy who wrote this book that we're going to be studying was actually the little brother of Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus had a little brother. In James 1.1, again, he starts this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now church tradition tells us that the writer of this, this letter that we're going to be studying was a guy named James. And he was the half-brother of Jesus. So here's what we mean by half-brother. James and Jesus had the same mom, right? Her name was Mary. We know about that. But they had different dads. Now, you're probably familiar with uh, Jesus and his story and his dad. But uh, Scripture teaches us that uh, Mary was in, engaged to a man named Joseph. And, um, and while she was a virgin, while they were engaged, she became pregnant. This was a miracle, a work of God by the Holy Spirit. We know that uh, eventually she gave birth to Jesus, to the Son of God. And then uh, Scripture basically leads us to believe that uh, after the birth of Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph began to have a physical relationship as a husband and wife. Um, they eventually had other kids. Jesus had brothers. In fact, uh, we know he had at least four because they're named in Scripture. He had sisters. We know there's at least two because they're always mentioned in the plural. And then there's Jesus, his mom and dad. So it's a family of at least nine people. His brothers actually are named in Scripture. There was James. Usually um, 
in uh, the Greeks would always mention people by age or by importance. James is mentioned first. He is probably the older of the, the younger brothers of Jesus. Um, so there was James, there was uh, Joseph or Joseph. Uh, some translations say there was Simon and there was Judas. He, Jesus had a brother named Judas. Judas is actually a fairly common name, probably kind of awkward at the same time. Um, most of your Bibles will actually give him the name Jude. Um, it's another way of translating the name for obvious reasons. And in fact, uh, you may recognize that name because there's a book of the Bible written by that younger brother. Now, we don't know a lot about Jesus' family, really, compared to what we know about Christ. We know most about his mom, right? We know her name was Mary. And most of what we know about Mary, we find out during, um, uh, during her engagement, uh, as angels tell her that she'll have a child, that she'll be a virgin. There's a lot of discussions there, discussions with angels, Joseph, uh, discussions with um, Elizabeth. Um, and then Mary, again, is mentioned more than any of the other uh, family members after the birth of Christ. Um, then there's Joseph, who was her fiancé. We don't know a lot about Joseph. We know um, he was a carpenter. Uh, we know a little bit about him during the, uh, the whole um, virgin birth thing. We see him at age 12. Just He's quickly mentioned, and then he's never mentioned again in, uh, during the life of Jesus. We're not really sure why. A lot of conjecture. Chances are he passed away. Uh, and then Jesus had siblings, um, probably six of them. We know very little about them. But, but think about this. Jesus had siblings. Right? Jesus had brothers and sisters. And, and think about this. Think about the unbelievably rare access that Jesus' brothers and sisters had to, to him. They got to know him as a little boy. Right? That would have been cool. They got to know him as an adolescent, right? During those awkward kind of adolescent years, unless it was just me. But you know, it was kind of, kind of going through all the changes in life, and they got to see him. They got to see what life was like and, and how he reacted to situations. And I was just thinking, like, they got to sit down and have meals with him every day. How cool would that be to have breakfast with Jesus? Just like, you know, hey, how's your day going? And, you know, talk about that and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, they got to get some of their education with him, which I don't know, maybe that was more difficult than good. Like he kept getting A's and, you know, acing the test and blowing the, the grade curve. I don't know. Um, you know, they got to, they got to see him work. Uh, we know that he was a carpenter from about 13 through 30. Um, they got to play with him. You know, again, I'm like, I don't know if they played board games or not. If they played Monopoly. I don't know if that was frustrating or fun. I don't know if he won every game because he could or if he let them win some games and they knew it and then that was kind of frustrating or I'm not really sure. Um, they got to see him worship. They, they got to go to synagogue with him. And they got to see, like, just imagine, right? How, I wonder what that was like when Jesus was in the synagogue worshiping his father. And they got, to, they got to see all that. If he had any sins, right, they would know. If he had any faults, they would know. And here's an interesting thing about James, who we're going to be looking at. James was not a believer in Jesus while, uh, be, be before the resurrection, which I find, again, so, so fascinating. Now, at the age of 30, Jesus moves out of the house. He hits the road. He begins traveling. He begins ministry. Uh, he begins preaching and teaching. When the Bible talks, by the way, about preaching and teaching, preaching is basically the proclamation of the gospel, typically to unbelievers. It's more of an evangelistic message. Teaching is basically, you know, Christian education, teaching the word of God. Jesus does both of those. He's healing. He's working miracles. He's feeding people. Um, he's challenging the religious leaders. He's taking them on. Uh, he picks 12 disciples eventually. He returns to his hometown. 
He gets home. At this point, the crowds are so big, it says that he doesn't even have time to eat lunch. He's so busy. There's so many people. And there's a really interesting story in Mark chapter 3. Jesus has been gone for a little time. He comes back to his hometown. He's there in his hometown. His family hears that he's there. Like, so I don't know if he went home and said hi, if he had dinner with them. They just hear he's in town. They hear he's drawing large crowds. And kind of in an unexpected passage, if you will, it says, and when his family heard about this, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, think about this. They thought their big brother had lost his mind. So just think about this for a minute, because we can read this and be like, what in the world's going on? But, but, I mean, if one of your siblings started tweeting that they were God, that they were the Savior, that they were judge, you know, if you got up in the morning to go, you know, to school or go to work and there were reporters on your front lawn, and they were like, hey, your brother says he's God. You know, what's your opinion? What do you think? You know, what have you saw? Uh, you know, what do you think about that? Like, it might have been hard on his brothers and sisters. Um, just to, you know, be able to, like, do you think they ever heard, why can't you just be more like your brother? You think they ever got tired of that? You know, why, why can't you get grades like your brother? Why can't you do carpentry work like your brother? You know, why, why? can you imagine living in the shadow? Of Jesus, I mean, I know some of you uh, had older brothers, older sisters, and you thought that was tough. <laughs> Imagine having Jesus be your older brother. He never gets anything wrong. And now he's come back to town and his siblings think he's lost it. They, they think he's flipped out. So they want to stage an intervention. You know, they, they get the whole van, unmarked van and it's, you know, waiting by the synagogue when he leaves and they'll, they'll get him in the van and get him home and get him off social media because no one tweets anything good in the morning. Got to get him off that. Maybe we'll get him into counseling. And, and, uh, but they don't succeed. He, he continues on in his ministry. But it's just fascinating, isn't it? That his brother and sisters think he's, he's out of his mind. In Mark chapter 6, there's this, another story. His ministry continues. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion about him. And, and here's something that some people were saying. Some people were saying, is not this the carpenter? So, so Jesus, by the way, was a carpenter for a while. And I know when we think of Jesus being a carpenter, I don't know why I always hear people explain it like, oh, he made tables and chairs and, you know, they were amazing, the best chairs ever. And, but most carpenters didn't do that kind of stuff. They went and built houses or, you know, if you needed some work done at your house, like, I was just thinking, imagine, you know, you go on Angie's list and I have a door that's broken. I need it fixed. And Jesus shows up, you know, he fixes your door, best door fix ever in, you know, history. But Jesus would go around and, and do stuff like that. And they're like, hey, wasn't this guy a carpenter, right? Wasn't he just a craftsman? Isn't he the son of Mary? Isn't he, isn't he the brother of James and, and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Uh, are not his sisters here with us too? And, notice, and they, took, they took what? Offense. They, they, they were offended by him. Now, they're not offended by his miracles. They're not, they're not offended that uh, he heals people. They're not offended that he provides them with you know, great lunches when they don't bring them. What they're offended by are his words. They're offended by the fact that he claims to be a prophet in fact, a prophet that's greater than Moses, that was extremely offensive to them. That he claims to be the savior of the world, that he comes to be the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through. They're offended by this stuff. And then Jesus says something. He gives us a saying that people still use to this day. He says to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. So this is a saying that you still hear sometimes used today. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's respected by a lot of people. 
He's, he's revered by many people. He's honored. He's listened to. He's believed by many people, except not in his hometown and not in his own family. And, and, and now maybe on a different level, you could kind of relate to that if you thought about it. Like when you were growing up or maybe even still, have you ever tried to correct one of your brothers or sisters, you know? Or have you ever tried to correct your mom or dad? You know, tried to teach them something or correct them and, and then they just kind of dismiss you? Uh, maybe, you know, they, they're like, who are you to talk? You know, I remember when you, were, you know, when you were three, you know, and you did that thing. Or you know how that happens sometimes when we're young, the people who knew us, they remember what we were like when we were five and they still think of us that way even when we're 30 or 40 and we try to, we try to talk to them and teach them things and correct them. And, but how do you think it felt for Jesus? Yeah, because Jesus, he wasn't like us. We're not perfect. We sin. We give people lots of reasons to question our wisdom and our advice and our correction and our words and our motives. We just do. And, and, and for many of us, we've experienced this sometimes as we grow up, right? As we, as we mature, as we get some integrity. Have you noticed sometimes that the last people who notice you've grown up, that the last people who notice you have integrity, is your own family. Because they still think of you when you were young and remember all the things that, that you did. And so many of us have, have thought of this passage before. Like we're somehow like Jesus, you know, when our parents don't believe us and we're like, well, yeah, that's just the way it was. It was like that for Jesus too. He wasn't honored in his own family. Except here's the thing. None of us are perfect, but Jesus was the perfect son. Jesus was the perfect sibling. Jesus had never sinned. Never given his family a reason to question him. Here's a thought I wrestled with a lot this week. Think about this. If anyone in history could ever reason their way into faith to Jesus, wouldn't it have been his own brothers and sisters? I mean, if faith was just merely a matter of pulling out a piece of paper, and well, I saw him do this and this and this. I heard him say this. I saw him do this. I mean, if it just came down to logic and reason, wouldn't his brothers and sisters have believed in him? And yet they didn't. And I think that's very instructive about the fact that no one in their own intelligence ever reasons their way to faith. Faith is something that comes from God. It is something that is divine, something I've been reminded of in this, in this passage. Now, a little time goes by, and by John chapter 7, Jesus' family, they've seen him do, I mean, they've seen him do miracles. They've heard him teach. And in John chapter 7, verse 2, it says this. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so his brothers, James among them, says to Jesus, hey, why don't you leave here and go to Judea, right? Because they were in a little town. Why don't you go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Now, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. I think about that. So here's what's going on there. You know, Jesus is in his hometown. He's working miracles. And they're like, hey, Jesus, hey, if you think you're a big deal, you know, if you think you're all that, why don't, you, why don't you go to the big city? Why don't you go to Judea? Why don't you go to Jerusalem? Why don't you preach there? See, see what people think. Right? Why don't you work miracles there? Right? Go ahead and prove us wrong. They're just saying that. So Jesus does it. He, he travels. He goes to the big city. He preaches. He works miracles. He even raises somebody from the dead. He's seeking out sinners. He claims to be God. Claims to be God. He's arrested basically for that. He's condemned for that. He's scourged for that. And he's crucified for his claim to be God. And imagine this. Mary was there for that. Like his mom 
saw him crucified. Can you, I mean, parents, can you imagine the horror? Your child, your sinless, perfect, wonderful child is arrested and tortured and you have to watch them suffer and die even though they are innocent. And Mary is there. And even though it's not said specifically, there's reason to believe that at least some of the siblings were there, if not for Jesus, for her. To comfort her, to be with her. But just imagine the horror of that. Imagine the confusion. Thinking, you know, for Mary, this is my son, this is the son of God. That's what the angel said. That's what his life attested to, being crucified on a cross. You know the story. Jesus dies. He's taken off the cross. He's put in a tomb. The tomb is sealed. Three days, days later, he rises from the dead. He conquers death. He conquers sin. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And in 1 Corinthians 15, there's an interesting little, little passage there. Um, Paul is talking about Jesus after the resurrection. And Paul says, you know, Jesus appeared to people. He, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to more than 500 at a time. And then he says this in verse 7, and I love this. He says, and then he appeared to, and I love how he names him, James. He's like, and then he appeared to his little brother and to all the apostles. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine James growing up with Jesus, growing up in the same house, probably shared a bedroom because you know, they didn't have a lot of rooms in those houses, probably shared bunk bed with him, doesn't believe in him. Jesus is crucified, still confused not believing him. Jesus is resurrected and appears to James. I love how he just calls out James specifically. He appears to James. What do you think James was thinking in that moment when Jesus appears? What do you think he was feeling in that moment? Like, I don't know. Was he, was he laughing? You know, was he just like so overcome with joy that he was just laughing? Was he crying? You know, was he, was he apologizing? Was he like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I spit in your milk when you were eight and you obviously know that because you're God now. And I, you know, was he, was he speechless? Did he fall on his knees and worship Jesus? Yeah, I don't know. But here's what we do know. After the resurrection, James literally reorients his life around his big brother. Everything becomes about his big brother. And he is transformed into a bold leader, into a believer in Jesus Christ. And he becomes eventually what we would refer to as um, a, a pillar in the church. So shortly after Jesus ascends, about 120 followers uh, gather together. And in Acts, it tells us that uh, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They're waiting for for the coming Holy Spirit there. They're together with the women, the, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Church historians tell us that especially James and Jude, two of his younger brothers, um, these are men who were there. These men ultimately become pastors in the church. Um, James first, and then uh, Jude takes his place. And they both write New Testament books, which, right, which is not bad. Like, that's a pretty good track record for parents. You know, give birth to the Son of God. Uh, we got two sons who are pastors. They both write books in the New Testament. Uh, a few years after this, there's a guy named Saul, who's a persecutor of the church. Um, he has kind of a, a come-to-Jesus meeting, becomes a Christian, changes his name to Paul, getting to know people in the church, ends up in Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. While he's in Jerusalem, he's there and he meets a lot of the church leaders. And he actually refers to uh, James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John as like, as a, he says they're like pillars of the church. They're like, they're like the leaders 
in the church, in a, in a great church full of great people, these are the guys who kind of hold this thing up. And it's interesting that he names James first, and then Peter, and then John. That would be John the disciple. Now, we know that Peter and John and Paul, um, they're traveling a lot. They're out preaching the gospel. They're traveling to new communities. They're, they're planting churches. But James stays behind. He stays in Jerusalem, and he becomes kind of like the senior pastor of, of church headquarters, if you will. And so the gospel's spreading, and people are coming to Christ. And when we get to Acts chapter 15, um, something interesting happens. Um, there begins to be a crisis in the church, and uh, they need to have a meeting and get this figured out. So they're going to have a, a church meeting, and, and James sends out an invitation. He's going to convene, really, the, the first council of, of church leaders in the history of the church. Some, some church historians will tell you this may well have been the single most important church meeting, church council in all of history, if not at least one of the top few meetings. And here's the issue. Here's what was going on. Uh, now, Jesus was Jewish. Uh, his 12 disciples were Jewish. All the first Christians were Jewish. The first church was Jewish. Christianity is, is, is spreading. And apparently what's, what's happening, and we can read this in different places, is it kind of goes like this. Um, disciples would go out, they would go to a new town, they would find a place where Jews congregated, and they would begin, sometimes it would be at the synagogue or other places, and they would begin to preach the gospel to these Jews who didn't know Jesus. And then some of the Jews would, would respond and they would become Christians and they would get baptized and they would plant a church. They would train those leaders and they would move on. And something weird starts to happen that's completely unexpected while they're doing this. At some point, one of the disciples is preaching in town. He's preaching the gospel and there's some Gentiles who wander by and they hear the gospel and they kind of stop and they listen. And when it's time to, you know, have the altar call, I don't know if they do that, but you know, maybe they have the altar call some of the Gentiles came forward. And, and the, the Jews, don't, they don't know what to do. Like, it's be, the, you know, Gentiles, I mean, like us. They're, they're just like, what do we do with the, wait, what do we do with a Gentile who wants to become a Christian? They weren't even sure that that was possible. They didn't know what to do. And so they began to, um, there's kind of, if you will, two, two camps that begin to grow up within the church about what do you do with Gentiles who want to become Christians? I know, see, this is funny to us today, because we're all Gentiles, and, you know, why is that so weird? But back then, that just the very thought that a Gentile would even want to have a relationship with God, that they were that spiritual, was amazing to them. So there's two options. The first option that's offered is, if a Gentile wants to become a Christian, first they have to convert to Judaism, and then they can become a Christian. This is a complicated thing, especially if you're a guy, but it's complicated either way. So here's kind of how you'd imagine it going. Like, let's say you, you, went, to, you went to synagogue, and Peter was preaching the gospel and you're a Gentile and you're like, hey, I want that. I want Jesus, right? So you go up and I want Jesus. And he says, oh, you know, you look like a Gentile to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Gentile. Okay, so you want to become a Christian. You want to become part of the church. That's cool. So um, here's what we need from you. First of all, we need a note from your doctor. Uh, you're a guy, so we need you to go. Now, um, if you haven't had this particular operation yet, we need you to go and uh, get the operation, uh, and then bring us a slip from the doctor that, in fact, you've had that certain procedure. That'd be great. And then a um, couple other things you need to do, because um, that wasn't enough. Um, you need to change your dietary rules. No, no bacon for breakfast, no pulled pork sandwiches for lunch. And then uh, we need to, you know, religiously, your culture needs to change. You need to 
start dressing like a Jew and you, know, you need to practice our holidays and start talking like a Jew. And then when you do that, then you can go to you know, 101 class and bring you a note from your doctor. And uh, you can go to class and then uh, if all that's good, we'll sign off on that and uh, you can become a Christian. <laughs> you can become a Christian at that point and get baptized and become a member of the church. So that was option one. Kind of complicated, right? They don't know what to do. Option two. Hmm. Well, if a Gentile wants to become a Christian, um, they can believe in Jesus. That's the second option. And I guess they're saved, right? Isn't that what God does? And these people are like, what? You mean a, a, a Gentile could just believe in Jesus and get saved? And they're like, yeah, it sounds biblical to me. They're not, they're not seeing eye to eye. So they call a, a council of the church leaders. James calls his council. Leaders come from all over. They, they, they get together. Um, they pray together. They open their Bible. They, they study it together. They discuss it. They're seeking the Holy Spirit. And then they have a day where they kind of, both sides get up and present their views, right? So, so one side gets up and they're like, we think they need to become Jews first. And then, uh, you know, there's the other view. Peter gets up. Peter shares his view. In Acts 15, we pick up the story. It says, after Peter shared his story, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and this and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are like, here's what you need to know. They're like, we can talk about theology all day long. I just need to tell you what I've seen. So they tell stories. We were out, we were preaching, we were near a synagogue, there were some Gentiles there, and they, you know, came forward afterwards, and they said they were, they confessed, they confessed Jesus as Lord, a Gentile. We heard them confess Jesus as Lord. And they, they repented of their sin, and here's the big thing, and then the Holy Spirit descended on them. He didn't even ask us permission. He just descended on them. They hadn't become members of the church. The Holy Spirit just descended on these people. Paul and Barnabas are like, what in the world? How could we possibly make them become Jews when they already have the Holy Spirit? You can see what's going on here. So having this debate, verse 13, and after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. James basically says, stop talking, be quiet, and listen to me. Peter stops talking and listens to James. When does Peter ever stop talking? Peter stops talking, listens to James. Paul stops talking. Paul stops talking. Right? Barnabas stops talking. All the leaders stop talking. They get quiet. They lean forward in their seats. And they listen to James. And James gives a ruling on this thing. Here's what we're going to do. And we're going to write a letter. And we're going to send it all to all the churches. And this is what we're going to do. James has that kind of authority. Think about that. That kind of authority. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, listen to James. And so the guys, they go back out. They start spreading the gospel again. And now it's open to Gentiles. And James keeps leading the church in Jerusalem. And he's preaching, teaching, he's pastoring. During this time, James uh, picks up two nicknames during his ministry, which are great. The first one is, he's known as James the Just. Which is great when you think about it. In other words, they said, James is, he's, he's just, he's righteous, he, he's holy, he lives a good life. We trust James. When James says stuff, we trust what James says. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? When James was a kid growing up with Jesus, he got to, he got to see um, how Jesus lived and what Jesus said. You, you remember the phrase, like, what would Jesus do? You, you ever do that? You're in a situation, and you're like, oh, what should I say? What should I do? Oh, what would Jesus do? See, James didn't have to read the Bible. James actually knew what Jesus would do because he saw Jesus do it for years and years and years. And so James heard the things Jesus said. James uh, saw how Jesus worked 
He saw his work ethic. He, 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 he saw how Jesus worshiped. He saw how Jesus did relationships. He saw how Jesus had fun and loved God and loved people and had integrity. And even though James didn't believe in Jesus in those years, none of it was lost on him. And now as a believer, it's all come back to him. He's remembering it. That's such a great thing. And when people look at James, they just keep seeing his big brother. I can think about how cool that is. Here's the second, uh, here's the second nickname he had. Camel knees was his second because James was known as a man who prayed so much. He was known as a man, for instance, historians say that he would go out and gather prayer requests from people in the church and then he would go and he would get on his knees and he would pray sometimes for days at a time and his knees became deformed after a while because he was such a man of prayer. James adjust, James the man with camel knees, James the little brother of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to know about James as we think about James. If nothing else, we could say James was a absolutely humble servant of Jesus Christ. Now, James was a very common name in that day. Uh, in fact, the name James comes up about 60 times in the New Testament. And scholars think that 60 times refers uh, to from five to eight different men. But typically what you'll see is if you go through the New Testament and read, it's always James, uh, you know, son of so-and-so, James, brother of John. Um, the question becomes, why didn't James, as he writes this letter, why didn't he identify himself by either his father or even better by his, by his big brother? Why doesn't he do that? Scholars say it's because he didn't have to. Because when people in churches got the letter, they knew who it was from just by reading it. They tell us there were only two James alive back then in the church who would have been so well known that they wouldn't have had to say who their, their father or their brother was. Now there's James the disciple and James the brother of Jesus. James the disciple, it's interesting if you go back and read, and I did it this week, every time James the disciple is mentioned, he's always referred to as James the brother of John or James the son of Zebedee. It's never just James. Beyond that, we know that James the disciple was martyred far too early to have been able to write this book. And so that leaves James, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the book, didn't need to brag about who he was because everyone knew who he was. In fact, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant is the word doulos. It means a servant, a slave. It means somebody who lives under the will or the direction of another person. Someone who doesn't call the own, their own shots. They, they do the will of someone else. It's interesting because James could have, he could have bragged a little bit, couldn't he? When he opened the book, instead of saying, hey, I'm just a servant. One writer uh, put it this way. He said, if, if it was me, I would have opened the book this way. James the just, from the sacred womb of Mary, blood brother of Jesus, confidant of the Messiah, and senior pastor of church headquarters in Jerusalem. Boom, right? Like, listen to me. But he doesn't do that. It's kind of like James is like, you know, yeah, I shared a bunk bed with Jesus, but you know what? That's all changed. Because Jesus came, lived, died for me, died for my sins, rose from the dead, is Savior. Jesus is exalted above everything else. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's sovereign. He is the Lord, I am his servant, right? And it's interesting, James sounds just like his big brother, doesn't he? Didn't Jesus say things like, I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve? And I love how James' whole identity is all wrapped up in Jesus. It's all wrapped up in God. It's like, if you, if you want to know me for anything, 
Know me as a servant, which feels to me so refreshing in our world because we live in a world full of people who are so insecure that we're looking for any way to prove that we are somebody. Truth is, most of the time, we're just trying to prove it to ourselves. We're trying to prove it to everyone else. It's why the internet is, you know, full of, of selfies, you know, look at me here, look at me in, on this vacation, look at me with this important person, because I'm so insecure, I feel so insecure, I've got to prove that I'm somebody important. So look at my picture, look at this, look at my Facebook post, let me brag, let me impress you, let me prove I'm important. And James comes on the scene, and he's like, you know what, I'm, I'm no Nobody. I'm just a servant. You gotta, you gotta love that. I want to mention for a minute who he's writing this book to. This is important. Every letter in the New Testament is written to someone. This is written to people who I'm going to say, and we'll fill this out in the weeks to come. People who are living in the spiritual suburbs, if you will. I love this concept. He says this. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So, 12 tribes refers to the entire nation of Israel. So he's like, I'm, I, if you're familiar with the nation of Israel, and then there was, you know, Israel and Judah and the 10 tribes and the two tribes. He's like, I'm just writing to all the Jews. And the word dispersion means scattering. And there's a lot of history here that we don't want to go through this morning. But basically, about 722 years earlier, um, the Assyrians had come in and conquered part of Israel, 10 of the tribes, and carried them away into captivity. They were scattered all over the territory over the empire, around the Mediterranean, and even, even into part of Asia, minor. Eventually, they come back about 130 years later. There's the two uh, tribes, the southern tribes. They're carried away by the Babylonians. They come back. The short of it is that uh, over a period of years, about 700 years, uh, the Jews go from living in the land of Israel. Some of them still live there, but many of them live in Jewish communities that have sprouted up all over the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean. Now, in, in, in James' day, there is a persecution that has started in Jerusalem. This is not the persecution from the government. That hasn't started yet. This is just Christians being persecuted by Jews who didn't like the fact that they followed Jesus. There's a persecution that started around the stoning of Stephen, and um, some of the Jews have to leave Jerusalem who are believers. They have, to, they have to leave immediately. They have to leave their homes. They have to leave their jobs. Some leave their families and their relatives. They have to get out of there or they're going to be killed. And so they do what Jews would do. They would find Jewish communities in other parts of, the, of, of uh, the Roman Empire, and they moved in. Here was the problem. When they got there, even though they were living among Jews, those Jews rejected them. So first of all, they've had to flee their hometown. They, they move to a community where they hope they'll be safe, but they're rejected there as well because they are Christians. And so they are rejected by Jews. They are exploited by Gentiles. Because of their faith, they're persecuted, homeless, poor, outcast, suffering, jobless. These Christians are living in what I call the spiritual suburbs. They're not living in Jerusalem by the big mother church and, and having all those advantages. They are living, many of them, isolated in other parts of the territory. They're not living in a safe spiritual community. They are living in a world that's hostile toward their faith. They're living in a society that was pressuring them to keep quiet about their faith. Don't talk about Jesus because if you do, we're going to persecute you. It could cost you your job, your relationships, your wealth, your homes, even your freedom. I know that we often feel today like we're living in the spiritual suburbs, don't we? Like we live in a very liberal part of the world. And, and it is tough, folks. But these people, it was a whole nother level. Here's all I'm saying is, is this, that, that 
that the things that James has to say to them are very applicable to us today. And James is going to encourage them to not be silent, but to live boldly and loudly, and especially to live out their faith practically, to demonstrate it in the world around them. And this brings us to the last point, and that is just um, our theme for James. So there's a lot of different ways that we could think of James, but our theme is going to be faith works. And there's kind of two ways you can take that. Uh, faith works or faith works. Or they may both sound the same to you. Uh, so here's a few things you want to know. First of all, the book of James, interestingly enough, we believe is probably the oldest of the New Testament books. We believe that James wrote his letter before any other New Testament book but especially here's where it's interesting, and we'll get into this in the weeks to come. That would have mean that James wrote this book before Paul wrote any of his letters, which if you're familiar with the tension that exists uh, since then between the way we think of James and the way we think of Paul, it's interesting that James came first. Now, some people see Paul, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, they see Paul and James as contradicting each other when it comes to the concept of faith and works. In fact, Martin Luther called James a quite strawy epistle. In other words, there was nothing to it. An epistle of straw in comparison with Paul's writings, for it has no gospel character in it at all. He didn't like it. He didn't think it should be in the Bible. He didn't study it. He didn't read it, and he didn't teach it. Now, I'm going to suggest that as brilliant as Martin Luther was, I think he kind of missed the boat on this one. And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. But, but some people say uh, they see Paul and James uh, like this. Paul teaches that salvation is by faith alone. And we would say, yes, Paul, we absolutely agree with that. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works, but by faith alone. Some people think that what James teaches is salvation is by faith plus works. And it might look like that on the surface before you really study the book. But in fact, that's not at all what James is saying. We could put it this way. Paul says salvation is through faith alone apart from works. And we would agree with that. James would say salvation is through faith alone confirmed by works. Paul approaches faith objectively. In other words, how a believer is justified legally before God. Where, where James is more subjective, he, he wants to talk about how we experience uh, real faith in everyday life. Or think about it this way. Paul in his letters typically begins his letters with lengthy theological arguments. So think of Romans for a minute. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, first 11 chapters, what does Paul do? Doctrine, 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 doctrine. And then in chapter 12, Anyone know what the first word of chapter 12 is in Romans? Yes, therefore. And what do we say about therefore? We say wherever you see the word therefore, you ask what is the word therefore? Therefore, right? Something's happening. There's a transition. So Paul for 11 chapters, doctrine, 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 doctrine. Chapter 12, therefore, this is how you live in light of doctrine. Paul does that. James doesn't do that. James just says, let's dive right into the therefore. Just right in he says, do this, do this, don't do that, don't say that, don't do this thing. And James shows us how to have a loving, living, visible, productive faith. In fact, in five chapters, James is going to give us 54 imperatives. Uh, that's 54 commands. So for the next, I don't know how many weeks this will be. Uh, I, it, we're in October. It's October, right? Uh, we will finish up James... Mm, the first part of May. 
So um, I don't know what that is, like 26 weeks or something like that. We're going to unpack this book, all right? We're going to settle in a little bit because there's a lot here. But here's our theme. Faith works. Here's another way to put it. Genuine faith that has the power to save you also will change the way that you live. Now that's the positive way. James is going to put it a little more on the negative side in which he's going to say on more than one occasion, if your faith doesn't change you, that faith cannot save you. Now I know in churches like this, we just want to pat you on the back and, you know, pat you on the head and, you know, you should feel good about it. Don't worry about it. James, I mean, if James were here this weekend, I just, James would say to you, based on the book, he'd say this, listen, I know you think you're saved. That's awesome. How do you know you're saved? How do you know? Right? I mean, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to leave? You don't want to leave this to chance, right? So James is going to kind of get in your face. He's going to kind of poke you a little bit. And he's going to kind of draw you to, to, to think this through. Here's what James would say. Everyone has faith. Everyone has faith in something. Even people who have faith in nothing have faith in the fact that they're hoping there's nothing to have faith in. But everyone has faith in something. People have, some people have faith in someone. Some people have faith in a religion or a system or, or morality or good works. James is just saying this. How can you know that the faith that you have can actually save you? Now, obviously, you care about that or you wouldn't be here today. How can you know that it saves you? That's what we're going to dive into for, you know, the 24, 26 weeks, whatever this is. How can you know? Now, I want to I close this with, with some words from Paul. Because again, a lot of people say, Paul, James at odds with each other. That's ridiculous, okay? Just, just set the record straight right off the top. I want to read one verse to you. And just, here, this is from Paul. Look what Paul says. This is awesome. For by, for by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Paul's going to say it very clearly. Paul says, let me tell you this. You are saved by faith. You are not saved by works. You're not saved by morality. You are saved by placing your trust in Jesus. It's never a result of works. Right? We'd say that sounds great. Next verse, which we often don't read. For we are his workmanship. Follow along. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good what? Wait, for good what? For work, for works, he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's he saying? He's saying, if you have a real faith, then that faith will work. It will do. You won't have to sit on your bed at night and go, I just don't know. I, there's just no evidence. I just can't tell. James is going to say to us, Paul is saying to us, you're saved by faith alone, but that faith always produces something. I thought it would be really good for us to close today because it would be easy to like, well, let's just sing a song, I'll pat you on the head, and we'll go from here. I think it might be good for us just to take just a few minutes to think about this. So we're going we're gonna to take communion, and then we'll be done. If, if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to take this with us. Guys, go ahead and come forward. And as they come forward, they're going to pass this out, take a, a wafer, take the cup, hold on to that. Let me just read for you uh, some words from the Apostle Paul. Paul's writing to the church. He just wants to remind him, what's communion about? What are, we, what are we doing here? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 